Welcome to the Learn With Lowell show. Uh, I'm your host, Lowell. Every week we talk to scientists, uh, leaders, artists from all around the world. Today we're joined with Doug Ethel. He is the CEO, chairman, founder of Lucadia Therapeutics, and I believe we're finding him in the U.S. on the West Coast today. Uh, welcome to the show, Doug. Thank you. Good to be here. Yeah. And um, could you just roughly uh, give us a, a, a rundown on your background? I looked at the bio and I was like, this is huge. I don't know if I could summarize this without losing some <laughs> important stuff. Well, it took a while. It took a while. Yeah. Well, I, I, I started in, in Vancouver at the University of British Columbia, mm -hmm. UBC, did my PhD there. And then I went to a postdoc at the Max Planck Institute for Psychiatry just outside of Munich. And, um, and then I came back and I worked, uh, worked at Scripps uh, for a while and uh, at La Jolla Institute for Allergy and Immunology, all the time working on neuroscience research. Mm -hmm. So I started my PhD was on spinal cord injury and repair mechanisms. And then when I went to Germany, I was working on survival factors for neurons. And then I came back to the West Coast, to, to San Diego, and we were working on cell adhesion molecules and, and cell death mechanisms. And then eventually I, I started my own lab at the University of California. And um, we worked on Alzheimer's disease and Parkinson's disease and uh, multiple sclerosis and, and a few other things, some autism projects as well. And um, then uh, I was at uh, Western University, which is about 20 miles away. And uh, I was there for a while and I started Leucadia in 2015. So it, it was kind of an interesting story because I'd, I'd come up with this different idea of Alzheimer's disease in terms of the cause of the disease, which, which we'll talk about today. And um, I sent it to the NIH for, for an idea of funding, but it didn't fit in with the dogma. And so I was like, hmm, wh what do I do with this? I, I had some other funding and I was going along with that funding. But I gave a talk at a longevity conference in San Francisco. And uh, a guy came up to me, Dave Gabell from the Methuselah Foundation, and he said, we've got some, some money we'd like to invest. And we'd like to fund your research, but we don't want it to go to university administrators who will spend mm. it on staples and things like that. Yeah. So we'll, um, I, I'd like you to start a company. And I thought, well, I'd always had that entrepreneurial streak. Um, so I said, yeah, sure, I could do that. And I started uh, Lucadia as a virtual company, really just a, mm. a name and, and I got some computer, I got a computer uh, to do the work and outsourced a few things. And after a couple of years, it seemed like we were making great progress. And it seemed to be uh, not just a cool idea, but a real possibility that we were onto something here. So in 2017, I, I stepped away from my professorship and dedicated myself full-time to Lucadia. And I've been running it now for five years and mm -hmm. we've been making terrific progress. And now we're about to go into clinical trials hopefully this year, maybe next year, depends on how the FDA um, views it. Um, and and that's kind of the background. Sweet, yeah, it, it, like I said, uh, it pretty pretty expansive. Um, so I have a couple of questions on just your background before we dive into the work. Um, when I, I mean, the show is called Learn With Lowell, so I always wonder how do people learn and how do people retain information? You've learned so many different, I mean, they're all related to the same you know theme of neuroscience, but how do you, do you have like a, 
like one thing I do, for instance, is when I learn something, I write down like what are the 20% key things that make up the 80% of what you need to know to be proficient in a thing. And additionally, whenever I find something that's neat, I write it down. But how do you keep everything straight in your head with all these different things that you're learning throughout like, you know, 20 years? Well, I, it's interesting. My wife and I were talking about this and she's a neuroscientist as well. Mm. And it's, it's interesting that in, in my career, I've seen it time and again, and, and I've experienced it that it takes about 25 years to really get uh, brain science, neuroscience from, from many different perspectives and, and really mm. make it gel. So, you know, in, in undergraduate and graduate school is studying a lot of things. Um, in, in graduate school, there's a, there's something called a comprehensive exam where you need to present your proposal and defend it. And, and the people on the committee generally give you like a textbook or a bunch of papers to read and they will, ask you questions on that, but they'll also ask you more general questions. And, and at UBC, it was always the idea of what could they trip you up on? So if they start mm-hmm. asking you something and clearly you know it, okay, they'll move on to something else and, and looking for holes. So it was it was an interesting experience. So I had to spend probably six months reading all this stuff and really you know, getting it in my head um, to, to pass that exam. And, and it went, went well. But also, it's it's nice because it's almost like um, decorating a Christmas tree. You know, you put mm. some stuff on the inside, and then you put more and more on it. So it's a repetition thing. Uh, the mm. the more times you encounter something, it's like, oh yeah, I know how that works, and and I'll just add this little bit of knowledge, and and that's kind of how it's been in neuroscience for me because I'm kind of a puzzle guy. I like I like solving problems, and so I. I really enjoy um, having a problem with Alzheimer's disease where nobody knows what the right answer is. So you have to go back and and look at the basics and figure out these things. I mean, I don't remember every biochemical pathway I learned in undergrad, but at one point I I knew them all. And so it's it's interesting that it was sort of my my emphasis shifts as as things progress, but it's. The, the knowledge is there. And so, so, for example, when I was working on this Alzheimer's idea, I was able to draw on my my graduate school teaching assistant TA job, which for three years was comparative anatomy, which is hmm. evolution of vertebrates, right? Looking at the heart and the spinal cord and the brain, looking at the development of all those things. And of course, you don't really know something until you have to teach it. So I taught that for a few years and it's come back to help me again and again. When somebody discusses the evolution of the brain, I know it pretty well. And um, and it, it gives me a, a little different perspective. So it's not just the stuff I was doing for my thesis work, but also the other stuff that sort of rubbed up against it. And I think it's very helpful to have a broader knowledge. If I just focused on that one thing, I don't think I would have as good an understanding of neuroscience as I do. And then now, you know, 25 plus years later, um, I've also taught a lot of neuroanatomy to medical students, and I needed to present it in a way that it was easily understandable. So that's yeah. kind of how I learned. But I, you're you're right. I mean, I do write stuff down. When I'm, mm-hmm. when I'm learning something, I'll take notes, and then I'll go over them again, and uh, repetition is the way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, in it, it seems to me 
from what you're saying and from what I've spoken with other people about is that like innovation, innovation off of one data point is really hard to do. Like innovation for most things is really just combining two things in a novel way that people didn't see before. So like that broad perspective um, is really, really valuable, especially as we're getting more machine learning and AI technology that's going to help us see things that we don't know what to do. But at the same time, um, we'll still be needing the problem solving and critical thinking to know what to do with the knowledge or the data that we're being brought in. Um, there, there. I don't know if you're familiar with Patrick Rothfuss's uh, the King Killer series. It's pretty good. It, he hasn't finished the third book, which makes me sad inside. But there's a, a there's a point in that book where Quoth, he's like this really great musician, and he's playing an easy song really hard to the point where people are like, will applaud him for it, but he's making fun of them because they don't know it's hard. But then he plays a hard song really easy. And so I was wondering, do people ever like fake? uh holes in their knowledge during the comprehensive exam so that they're like it's like oh well, i didn't i don't know that you know neurons have an axon body with my you know like do people ever like game the system in that way well well it's it's uh stand and deliver time for comprehensive exams mm. they're they're a little bit different here in california they're not quite as quite as rigorous i guess but um it's very cutthroat up, mm. up north. um but but i think it's uh people do tend to snow a little bit when they don't know stuff and and even when they go to the society for neurosciences meeting people just you know just blow by stuff and mm -hmm. and if you if you know what you're talking about it's it's easy to pull stuff out and say well that's not that's not right or or reviewing grants or reviewing papers um you'll often encounter stuff and you go well listen i spent i spent a while doing that and um yeah I mean, if you know it, it's it's quite clear who doesn't know it. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, and then uh, puzzle optimization. Uh, I'm just curious, is there a way that you induce the greatest possible environment for you to problem solve? You know, like like I could see there's some things I do if I'm like really trying to like, you know, problem, like sometimes I like close my eyes and like think about everything in my head. But um, when you're like really just trying to th think on things and, and work on puzzles, is there anything that you do to just maximize it so you can do your best job so you're not distracted, et cetera? Well, I, I'm, I'm a, I'm a big fan of, of Danny Kahneman. Do you know Danny Kahneman? System one, system two. Oh, he, no. he's a psychiatrist. And so Kahneman and Tversky, they were these guys who, who came up with this idea of bias, right? When you're, mm -hmm. You're thinking of stuff and and eventually that evolved into the idea of system one and system two basically system one is just the reflexive stuff you know from working your way through the world and um, system two though is what is engaged when you're working on a hard problem right you have uh you have an autonomic response to it it's it's takes your your focus and your attention and and you can really use system two only for limited periods of time because it's pretty lazy. You'll eventually just give up the puzzle. Oh, oh no, no, and and rely on one of the other things. So coming back to a puzzle, if if I have like a, a, a difficult puzzle, and this has happened a few times in science, where we're, I'm trying to figure out how a couple of things fit together, and it's it's good to to read and work on it, but the the epiphanies really happen at the weirdest time. Right, it happens that you know, wake up at four thirty, five o'clock in the morning, you're laying in bed, and and you're thinking like, uh, your your mind is clear. Well, and certainly for me, my, my mind is clear. I'm not troubled by the the thoughts of the day, and I start thinking of things, and it, and the solutions arise. The epiphanies happen for me very early in the morning, 
uh, either before I get up or soon after I get up. But once I start opening my phone and doing other things, it's system one takes over. Hmm. Have you ever, uh, I was talking to Robin Matsuki. I'm always terrible with last names. So I'm glad you, uh, I said yours, right? The, um, he was telling me that he does like cold showers every now and again to like kind of activate that type of thing. Do you ever do something mm-hmm. like that or have experimented? I, I, I hear like the Andrew Huberman guy. He talks about those types of things a lot, but I never know what's real versus versus just like an internet guy talking about things. Um, I, I haven't tried cold showers to, to come up with problems, but uh, um, <laughs> I, I am a big believer in healthy body, healthy mind. I mean, if you're mm. if you're keeping active and you're eating pretty well, um, it'll be easier for your mind. And also, I, you know, I, I swore off coffee a few years ago and I'm very mm. happy I did. It's the, you know, the up and down all day long. Yeah. It was tough to give up, but uh, but now it's much better. Yeah, I saw all my friends growing up get on coffee. It's like, we're young. Why do we need this? Like, you know, and and then when they would try to, they, they would miss their cup of coffee and they would just be so angry at the world. It's like, well, I don't want to be dependent on that. So I'm going to go in this direction. And so far, so now I'm like, I don't, I don't even want to start. You know, I'm, I'm afraid of getting, getting on, getting on the stuff. Um, well, well, yeah, I mean, and it's, it's kind of funny now because, you know, you go by Starbucks and everybody's just standing there for their fix. Mm-hmm. Happy to, happy to pay six, 10 bucks and wait for 20 minutes for, for it. but uh, anyway, so yeah. much for our superiority. We'll we'll just push that aside. <laughs> yeah, the, uh, I'm I'm curious about the spinal cord and central nervous system. As a just as a quick aside before we jump into these uh, really cool topics, um, when I was in college, when I started college, there was I literally had textbooks that said the brain does not repair. Like it's just like you get a thing, you have a problem. And it was like I was like that doesn't feel right to me. It just intuitively like people wake up from uh, comas. Uh, you learn things. Like I just feel like it has to have some uh, ability to adapt. But then by the, like four years later, I had textbooks that were saying like, yeah, we'll repair a little bit. Uh, and so I didn't know if it was like maybe in the higher level courses, they care a little bit more about the nuance of like what actually is going on in the brain. Uh, but with like spinal cord injuries and like people waking up from um, comas, with your background, have you, um, is the is the brain more adept at repair than we, we give it uh would give it credit for because I, I, feel, I feel like it it's it's always described as either like so slow it's like barely even happening or it's not at all like just in, in, in the course of my i'm 30 now but like at the time like no one the textbook said like it did not repair well that that's a whole can of worms you've opened there mm. so um i i think it really depends on the type of injury right mm. if it's a spinal cord injury and there's um there's a a break um in the connections it's it's more difficult to repair. And so it's different in the peripheral nervous system. So if you have a surgery on your knee and they pinch a nerve and you lose sensation in your toes, um, it'll probably come back. And it grows back about a millimeter thickness of a dime a day, right? But what the way the reason it comes back is because the the fiber going from the spinal cord down to the, the foot or the sensory neuron going in the foot, going up to the spinal cord, um, those are are wrapped in insulating sheaths called uh, made by Schwann cells. And so what happens in regeneration in the peripheral nervous system is that starts to degenerate slowly, the part that's cut off from the cell. And the part that's connected to the cell will make a growth cone and it'll grow through that degenerating tube, that Schwann cell Hmm. tube. So it really has a guide to to get to the target field. But in the central nervous system, so damaging the spinal cord 
the the problem is that for locomotion for for walking the the basic pattern for bipedal walking is in the spinal cord and so it's activated and fine-tuned by signals going up and down from the brain to the spinal cord and so those communications um if there's if there's a damage or a lesion a, a dysfunction we would call it a lesion so if there's a lesion there um it's difficult for those cells to grow down because of the complexity of the nervous system. So let, let me explain. The, the nervous system develops when we're, you know, very small, um, an embryo fetus, right? And what happens is a lot of neurons are made and they migrate into certain areas. So in the, in the cortex, that happens on a very specific time scale. So a layer of cells will be made and then the guide cells, the radial glia, will go up a little higher, and then the cells in that layer will be made, and then the next layer will be made, right? So you have mm -hmm. six layers, and they're they're made at specific times, and then after that, that doesn't happen anymore. But what happens is the cells that aren't neurons are are made quite a bit after birth. So the astroglia and oligodendrocytes that that play important functions. Um, in the, the brain, um, they grow later. So, so when your brain gets bigger, it's mostly adding glia and blood vessels and things like that. Mm -hmm. It's not really adding so many neurons, but the neurons are adding connections or making more and more connections. So if you damage the spinal cord, what's happening is you're taking a finely tuned system and, and damaging it. So if it, if it creates a growth cone, right? And the part that's connected to, let's say, something in the brainstem, a red nucleus. Um, so it, it will try to grow down. It'll try to make it. But the thing is that the nervous system becomes so finely tuned that if it was allowed to just sort of randomly sprout, there would be um, short circuiting of the system uh, quite a bit. So there are inhibitors in the central nervous system that actively prevent um, the, the growth cones from, from growing out and, and making new connections. So when you have damage, um, there's, there's a problem because those, those inhibitors are there. And also the environment that those neurons uh, were first born in and grew into position, that environment is completely different, right? The brain is no longer this big. It's, you know, it's this big. So mm -hmm. it's, it's difficult in, in spinal cord injury, but I'm not saying it's it's not doable at all. It's just that we have to come up with therapies that modify the system and allow for that regrowth to occur. But uh, you know, something like a, a stroke, um, what what's happening there is there's a disruption of the blood supply. And so some of the cells will die right in the center of that. And then there's a sort of a shadow area around it called a penumbra. And so you'll get variable amounts of death there. Depending on how extensive that is, you'll you'll get recovery once the blood supply comes back. And when it recovers, the synapses will will reorganize a little bit. And so you can get recovery, um, recovered speech or use of your your leg. But it depends really on how long the blood loss was and how extensive it was, how big the blood vessel was, and and was it a complete occlusion. So that's kind of how strokes work. So I I don't know if this is a completely satisfying answer to your question, but I, I think it's, it is, as you say, more nuanced than that. 
that it depends on the type of injury and where it is and uh, if there are interventions. But in terms of the innate ability of the nervous system to recover, if you have a spinal cord injury and, um, and it's coming down so that the fiber process from the brainstem is coming down and it's, it's at the site where there's the injury, if you put a piece of peripheral nerve in that place, those, those axons, growth cones, will grow through the peripheral nerve. But then if you put it back into the nervous system, they're, they're not going to get very far. They're going to have the same problem. Mm. That's really fascinating. Um, and it, it did answer my question. It's very nuanced that the growth cone in particular reminds me of like the axolotls when they're regrowing some, their, their limb. There's like the little like bubble part that like then grows out and grows the rest of the limb, the little, the little hand back and stuff. And they apparently can regrow parts of their nervous system as well. It's really cool. They, I, I grew with the salamanders, axolotl. Uh, they're, they're fascinating. That, that's how I first got into this stuff. I was very interested in it as an undergrad and regeneration. And then I wanted to work on regeneration in the nervous system of, of, of humans. Um, and the salamanders are great. And, but one of the things is they, the complexity of their brain is not that great. So mm. they're very good at doing this. If they, if they get a, a catastrophic injury, they could just sort of dig their way into the mud and then they'll come out uh, a month later and be okay. But evolutionarily, um, if, if a primate has a, a massive injury, they're, they're probably going to get picked off by a predator. So it's, yeah. uh, there's, there's little evolutionary advantage to keeping those systems in place versus, you know, making a very complex wiring system sort of more, more, uh, static. Mm-hmm. And actually, uh, I have an axolotl right here that my longtime listeners, if you can still hear me, sorry, there's an axolotl behind my left shoulder. Um, longtime listeners have like a, like a little bit of a guessing game at where it is on the, in the background. Cause I, I love the, the little guy so much. Um, so when I, when I was first, uh, getting introduced to science, something that I thought was really cool. It's very basic. So everyone's gonna be like, Oh, well, I can't think of something like a cool example. But the first time I saw, like I read in the textbook, like how, uh, water moves in and out of cells. And I was looking at a microscope of a leaf and you can actually see the, the, the green cells getting bigger and smaller and the fluids moving around. I was like, Oh, this is so cool. And I remember my teacher, like, it was like kind of making fun of me. Cause like, Oh, you can see it. <laughs> was there anything like that, uh, with your research where it's like, well, you, you could actually see what you just were reading about. It just felt more real that way. Um, well, sort of in grad school. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, figuring out how everything goes together, but, but in, in our own lab, you know, occasionally you, you come up with something and then you see the result and it's, it's mm. shocking. Um, but one example was a, a project we did on, um, on fragile X syndrome. So this is a, a human developmental disorder. It's uh it's on the X chromosome. So, you know, boys only have one copy of the chromosome X chromosome. So they, they're more susceptible to that. And um, so they have, you know, learning deficits and, and emotional uh, issues. And uh, we were working on on a mouse model for fragile X syndrome, and and we reasoned that uh, we could put a specific inhibitor in there that was going to block a specific enzyme. We thought that that was maybe involved in in the thing. Now the thing is that the boys who have fragile X syndrome, one of the one of the features is they have um, large gonads, so large testicles, uh, so hypergonadism. And we saw that in the mice as well. And so we crossed the mice with mice that were deficient for this enzyme, 
right? So the mice were missing this one enzyme and they were missing the fragile X uh, protein as well. So the, the thing that was interesting is we're, we're doing the autopsies on these, these mice and um, their testicles were, were the same size, right? Mm. So we could line them up and you could see the differences, you know, and the big ones and the little ones and line up, you know, half a dozen of each um, genotypes of so three different genotypes. Um, and it was, it was obvious to us that you need this gene to get this phenotype, to get this condition. It isn't just the loss of this one protein, but it's actually the, the, the presence of this other enzyme. It's being, you know, expressed at much higher levels. It's doing more than it normally would in the case of the fragile X system. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's one of those things where, you know, (laughs) You're working with a grad student and, and we're just like lining these up. It's like, wow, there's another one. Oh, here's another one. Let's see if we can figure out which genotype this one is before we look at the code. And it's it's very obvious. But yeah, mm-hmm. that's a cool thing. Yeah, it's really fascinating. The, uh, it reminded me of, uh, I was, uh, I think it was, a, I was taking a graduate level course, undergrad for fun, and uh, as one does. And uh, they were letting us dissect. It wasn't a rat. It wasn't a sheep. I think it was like a goat or a sheep, a sheep's brain. And we were, uh, we were dissecting it. And I was like, hey, what's this weird thing? And it was a tumor. The first time I cracked open a head, I found a tumor. I was like, oh, that's neat. I hope that doesn't like come, you know, if it's like life was a movie. Like, I hope that's not like, you know, ominously like foreshadowing something in my future. But it's like when you when you can actually see this stuff, like especially like tumors, like it's like it was really actually hard to see. I don't know how I guessed it. But um, it's, it's kind of neat to see these things in practice versus just on the page. It's well, a little bit more it, alive. Yeah, absolutely. It is. And, and then, you know, being a, a med school professor, you know, we see see a bunch of those things and it's. Mm-hmm in the cadaver lab but uh, yeah it's real it's not all fake it's not all made up <laughs> yeah we're getting to the fakeness you, you i think you, you sense where i'm going with this um i am curious uh this leads into our, our conversation on alzheimer's is there um how difficult it is it to find brains that replicate that have similar function to our brains like reese's monkeys rats etc so that when we do research the results are actually something that's worthwhile like i we t- in i think a couple of the papers that you wrote I read all your papers, uh, but I also read a lot of papers. So now I don't know what I'm citing. I hope I'm citing you correctly. You talked about how uh, rat, you know, people know this, like rats don't really jump up to humans uh, effectively. That's a known thing. But um, I'm curious, like what are there, is there anything that's close enough to a human where like it would actually be worthwhile to do studies on them to get a more closer one-to-one? Because we can't guinea pig humans. Like that's not a nice thing to do for like for the early stages. Well, it, it depends on what you're looking at. I mean, a, a great deal of biology is reductionist science. So, we're, you know, if we're looking at, for example, in that mouse study, we're looking at a very specific enzyme and how it does certain things and with the fragile X protein. And so uh, a mouse model is, is good for that. Or if we're looking for, you know, a spinal cord repair mechanism, you know, a rat or a mouse will do. Um, we really only need to approach excuse me, humans for, for high level cognitive things. Mm. And, and most of that can be, can be modeled or if it's a cognitive testing, you can do that with people. Right. Mm. So um, I, the, the use of higher primates and researches is, is a, a, a controversial issue. I don't think we really need to use, um, higher primates for the vast majority of research and um so yeah it's a sensitive topic in that way but also you know you need to be uh 
conscientious about using any animal in research. Um, it, it has to be a well thought out uh, thing that you can't do in vitro. You can't do it in a culture dish. Uh, although more and more, that's increasingly possible. For example, you know, stem cell stem cells, you can grow them as clumps of cells they, and, and differentiate them into organoids that are sort of representative of things. Um, and so I see a lot of that uh, coming along and you can do those with human cells. So they're really just a, a bunch of cells, but you can, you can do that. Um, but animal research is, is important for certain types of, of medical research. And it's very difficult to bypass at this time, maybe in the future, but right now it's, it's difficult to do. Yeah. I, I, well, I'm reminded of this study, I think it was in the UK where they went straight from theoretical to inhumans and uh, they were dosing, they, they did like a bunch of things wrong, which then helped everyone else realize, hey, maybe you should do things differently. But uh, they dosed like 16 people at the same time versus like staging it in case like there was a problem. And yeah. uh, the immune system just had a terrible response. I think like people lost feet and stuff like that, like uh, stuff turned black. Um, yeah. Yeah. yeah, it can get pretty bad when you don't have those uh, safety, uh, safety features in there. At the same time, F the FDA, I think, recently recognized that um, non-animal like uh, doing research on non-animals is something they're willing to consider, like not just willing to consider, but you can use it as evidence. I think that's a recent-ish thing where the FDA said, like, you don't have to use animal models. You can use a different model. Like, I think uh, they're looking into it, but I don't think they've made that change yet. It, okay. it, it's, it's serious. If you want to put a drug into a person and you have a clinical trial, a phase one trial with, with 20 people, um, the FDA wants to know that if you put it in, you're not going to get anaphylactic shock or some toxic effect. And uh, you can only model that so much. So the FDA is very insistent on, um, there's usually two animal models, you know, mouse or rat or rabbit um, for, for drugs, but that's that's later in the development cycle. So after mm. a, a lot of testing has been done, they're pretty sure it should be okay. But yeah. um, they, they need to provide that data. I, I think it's probably just a working idea that, and they'd love to get away from it. But um, right now, I don't think the technology is there, even with machine learning. And we do quite a bit of machine learning as well. But it's it's more complex than anybody realizes. Yeah, I, I think I was reading. Yeah, I must have misread it then. Uh, I was also uh, hopefully reading correctly that one thing that is interesting about the FDA is that um, when you submit something to the FDA, you choose the data that you give them. Like you don't have to give all the data that you've collected, which I, I can imagine would be onerous from the FDA. You could like drown them with data so they can't do any work. Um, but at the same time, you can kind of like, I feel like that would artificially allow companies to pick and choose their data a little bit. So I wish it was like a little bit more of like an auditing system there so that uh, well, it would be a little the, more safer. The, the FDA officials are pretty savvy. They know what mm. they're looking for. Um, they're, they're, they care about what they do. And um they, there are certain parameters and, and measures of biosafety and biocompatibility that, that they will force any entity to to hit. Um, but, you know, it's a, it's a large organization. I'm sure things happen, but it's, yeah. um, you know, they, they do a very good job. Yeah, and then uh, um, this leads me to a larger question. Um, and recently we had the CEO of NeuroAge, Chris, Christine. I suck at saying names. It's not Christine. Uh, NeuroAge, uh, who we discussed, like just the little precursor of the Alzheimer's disease research drama. And it just led me to this larger uh, implications of like, how do you trust data? How do you trust research when you're trying to 
like imagine if you if your whole company was built off of the premise of the the research that was found to be incorrect um so if you could just like talk about that a little bit and then um and then talk about how uh how do you how do you like know what to trust i guess like that's kind of like if you can't trust peer-reviewed i think it was peer-reviewed right like like they really um like pulled the world over people's eyes um now peer review everybody's pretty pretty honest when you go through peer review there's obviously some politics going on at, at certain journals but but generally the peer reviewers do a do an objective perspective of the science and they look for holes because the easiest thing to do is find flaws with with something that you don't like right um so uh, most reviewers do do a good job, and typically there are three reviewers on any paper, and they have to get along or agree on major points. Not get along, agree on points because they don't know who who the other reviewers are. And then the editor's job is to sift through those and see if it makes sense, um, and then they'll they'll publish it. Um, in terms of whether you're absolutely right or wrong, I think that there are gray levels. Right. If you come up with something um, that's right, uh, time will tell. Other people will repeat it, and it'll be clear that you're right. Um, and you know, in the size of the world and history, it doesn't really care what you think. Right? Science is is going to eventually get to the bottom of stuff. Sometimes it takes a little longer. Sometimes um, it's a straight path. But um, generally, it's it's hard to. Um, just you know pick the absolute right thing i mean quite quite often it's your you're the right way but you you know you're almost like a drunken sailor one of those navigation things you're going a little left a little right a little left a little right and if you say all those little wrong turns were shouldn't have been done uh, you know that's that's not how it works i mean part of the reason it course corrected back to to the right path is because uh, people put their ideas together and and um there's a, there's a collective work on that so um yeah you know the dogma is the easy place to be breaking the dogma is is difficult but sometimes the dogma is right not always but sometimes it's right usually yeah yeah the um and i think the alzheimer's research that was i don't know if debunks the right word but uh, uh they thought beta amyloid proteins were the major cause of alzheimer's and it's proven that that's not the case or uh, they have data that supports the opposite of that if i remember correctly yeah yeah that is a whole new can of worms lowell so it's um it was the amyloid hypothesis mm -hmm. it came came about and i i think it's probably the 80s um off a, a famous east coast school we won't say which one um and it was the idea that amyloid beta was the cause of everything and there was some data that that made that look very reasonable. For example, you know, there, the mutations in people who get an early form of Alzheimer's, early onset Alzheimer's disease, most of them have a mutation in one of the beta amyloid uh, enzymes that, that cleaves and makes beta amyloid out of a bigger protein. And so, uh, you know, that was, that was very logical. And so uh, they went along and tried to um, block the enzymes that would create the beta amyloid protein. So there's two enzymes. There's a beta secretase and a gamma secretase. And so the beta secretase just sort of didn't seem to work, but the gamma secretase inhibitors were pursued up until 2009. So the gamma secretase sits within the membrane and it's sort of, it's the last cleavage step to make the amyloid beta peptide. 
And so what happens is it cleaves that and there were some inhibitors made by all the big pharma companies and so sometimes they licensed it, but they had all these inhibitors to gamma secretase. And so we, we were working on something similar, but we reasoned that the gamma secretase we knew also cleaved about 20 other important proteins, right? And so, um, including Notch, and Notch plays a major role in angiogenesis in terms of how many blood vessels, the blood vessel density, right? So if you block Notch, um, suddenly you'll get more blood vessel branches, right? Sometimes it's it's too much. But uh, the gamma secretase inhibitor is a, a critical regulator of Notch and a few other important proteins. And so I I remember sitting at this, this Society for Neuroscience meeting where a big drug company had this gamma secretase inhibitor in, in phase three, um, and they were announcing their results because they had to announce it. And so it, they'd spent, you know, billion dollars probably on this gamma secretase inhibitor. And I, I've been saying for, for quite a while, it's like, well, you know, this is going to have other effects um, because it's not just beta amyloid. You can't just block this. And so I remember um, listening to that talk and there was, uh, and they came up and said, well, basically the gamma secretase inhibitor, um, it made the patients worse. And then when we stopped giving them the gamma secretase inhibitor, they didn't get better. They, they stayed worse and they got worse faster, which was the death throw for that death knell, I guess, for that. And I remember sitting beside um, a, a well-known neuroscientist in the field and I was saying, well, saw that coming a mile away. He was like, no, I, no, I don't think so. I don't think so. Like, well, yeah. You need a maybe a broader understanding of the biology here. It's not just beta amyloid. But but that was that was uh, the first stab at uh, beta amyloid. And then um, they also tried uh, vaccinating with beta amyloid. So there's a company called Elan, and they um, did a trial where they vaccinated mice with beta amyloid, and they saw that some of the plaques uh, disappeared. So that turned into a huge uh, trial, cost like $2 billion, Pfizer was involved. It was called a bapanuzumab. And um, turned out it was not, not very good because when they did that, they activated T cells that would go after the beta amyloid wherever it was. Well, if it was in the brain, as happens in Alzheimer's, you get brain inflammation and it attacks the blood vessels uh, because of beta amyloids in there as well. So they had a big problem with that. So they had to stop trying to vaccinate with amyloid beta. Uh, it, it carried on for years. And we we also did a study where we were looking at, at a, a type of T cell response, Th1, Th2 um, during uh, after vaccination with beta amyloid. But um, so that that led them to led the field to sort of say, well, how can we, how can we get past this? And so the thinking on that was, well, if we could just go for that part of the immune response that we think is important um, and isolate that, that would be great. And so part of the immune response they were solicit the inducing with the, the vaccinations of beta amyloid was to make uh, antibodies that bind to beta amyloid. So a uh, number of people made monoclonal antibodies, these very specific reproducible mm -hmm. antibodies that bind to beta amyloid. And so they'd put them in the mice 
and uh, they could clear away the plaques if they put them into the brains of the mice. You know, there are these chambers in the middle called ventricles. You put them in there and you get it, but that's that's not going to happen in a human trial. So they started giving the mice um, intravenous antibody. Now, one of the problems is that the, the brain has something called the blood-brain barrier, and it doesn't allow antibodies to readily enter the brain. So what they would do is they would give massive, massive amounts of this purified antibody. And they said, oh, well, some of it's getting in, um, but it, it led to 10 years of trials. It's like, oh, some of the antibodies getting in, oh, it's acting as a sink. It's drawing the amyloid beta out of the nervous system and, and it's decreasing it. Um, but what happened was it led to some spectacular phase three failures because they would give these massive amounts of antibodies. And uh, first of all, people would have some side effects, which we won't go into uh, related to the, the vascular system. But also um, the question was, is it doing anything? So if you give massive amounts of an anti-A beta antibody to, to an Alzheimer's patient, the plaques will maybe go away. But the problem is that's not the cause of their dementia. Right, so they weren't cognitively improving, and so it's led to, you know, most recently Biogen had their their drug approved for use, but it's a, an enormous controversy because yeah. it's decreasing what's been a clinical marker for Alzheimer's, which are, are the amyloid beta load. You know, you can use PET imaging to see how much is in the brain, but they don't improve cognitively, right? And so that's why the 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 Medicare um, folks have said that we're not going to pay $55,000 a year for every Alzheimer's patient to get this because it's it's not going to make them uh, less demented, right? The yeah. dementia will not be lessened by this. There's, there's no evidence for, for the lessened dementia. So what they're really doing is they're saying, well, one of the markers that we've used for, for a long time is better, but uh, in the end, um, it's not really improving their lives much. It's enormously expensive. It is dangerous to a certain extent because there are these side effects that come up time and again. Um, and so now it's shifted and there are other companies involved. I won't say who they are. Um, they've said, well, you know, it's it should be prophylactic. We should give that antibody to people, you know, in their 30s. And by the time they're 65, we'll have less Alzheimer's. Okay, that's that's going to take 40 years to do that study. Um, your company is going to make hundreds of billions of dollars. And it's questionable as to whether it's actually going to help anybody. Wouldn't it Wouldn't it be better to spend some money finding out how these things actually work? Mm -hmm. So um, it, it's a little discouraging because the field was so overtaken by the amyloid beta um, approach uh, because people sort of gave up on the scientific method. Right, the scientific method you observe, you create a hypothesis, and then you test your hypothesis. And depending on how it goes, it'll guide where you go from there. If you fail to support your hypothesis, it's just by random chance that you got a good effect, then you have to go back, observe some more, create a new hypothesis. But for 25 years, a great many people have abdicated the scientific method by saying, oh, it's beta amyloid, let's test this. Oh, it didn't work. Oh, oh, well, let's just change the way we do it and we'll do it again. It's just again and again. 
And so, um, so that's why, you know, about, about 12 years ago, I, I stood back and said, well, I think we're, there's a systematic error here. We're not looking at this disease the right way. And so what we've, we've really got to do is, is uh, strip all of this political stuff away. And I spent a good couple of years looking at the older literature to say, well, you know, what do we have with data behind it, right? How did we veer off course here? And uh, it, it took me a couple of years to, to work through that. And I, I sort of went back a little bit to um, amyloid beta um, forms these deposits and those form elsewhere in the body with different proteins like immunoglobulin A or other things that form these amyloid folds that can give you these deposits. So it's called amyloidosis elsewhere in the body, but in the brain, um, it's considered in a different way, but it, it really shouldn't be. So what happens elsewhere in the body when you get amyloidosis, a major part of that is that the clearance of the tissue um, is compromised, this clearance of the knee or, or some other connective tissue. And when I say clearance, I'm saying, that there are the cells, which are the structure, and in between the cells, there are spaces or interstitial spaces. And so stuff flows along and cells just naturally make things. They make, you know, insoluble macromolecules, debris. If a cell dies, it'll fragment into apoptotic bodies. Um, and that big stuff has to be carried away by the interstitial fluid. Things like carbon dioxide and small peptides, they can go into the bloodstream and get carried away. But the bigger things have to be moved by this interstitial fluid flow. And so I, I started looking at that in the nervous system and I thought, well, what if that's the case in Alzheimer's disease too? That it's really the accumulation of amyloid beta is just an indicator that the interstitial clearance is deficient. And so that led me to um, to look at the disease in terms of how it develops, because something that's quite often misunderstood is that Alzheimer's doesn't just suddenly appear everywhere in the brain. You can have some features like amyloid deposits appear, but that's not Alzheimer's disease because those people don't necessarily have Alzheimer's. But Alzheimer's pathology starts in, in a couple specific areas. So the medial temporal lobe, so there's two little things on the bottom, uh, inside, it starts there in the basal forebrain. And so the thing is, what could cause a deficiency in the interstitial clearance of those structures? Well, the, the fluid in the brain um, starts as cerebrospinal fluid in ventricles and it sort of flows through the tissue, clear, picks up this stuff, and then it goes out to the surface of the brain. And there's this very thin chamber uh, on the surface of the brain called the subarachnoid spaces. And so then the fluid flows along and that CSF gets taken away. So it's got all the metabolites and debris. Well, the CSF that gets taken away from those areas where Alzheimer's begins goes along the olfactory system, right? That's how we smell, right? And, and so the olfactory system goes and it, it dumps it out right between your eyes, right? About right there, about that far back is a little structure called the cribriform plate. And mm -hmm. we discovered that that changes with aging. Basically, there's a, a little system in there that allows the fluid to come out of the brain and prevents pathogens that might be in the nasal cavity from getting into the brain. This is a, a very delicate little structure. 
and it changes with age. So what we're really doing is losing the ability for that to go through. And so the net effect of that is that the medial temporal lobe basal forebrain where the where Alzheimer's pathology begins, um, it's not being cleared as efficiently. Maybe it's still a little bit like 50%, then 40%, then 30%. And, and what happens is those insoluble metabolites and debris, they start to accumulate. And it turns into like a slough that the neurons in that area are trying to survive in this slough. And they'll make things like, like um, uh, tau intranuclear intra deposits of, of tau. Um, and then, you know, they'll, they'll be dysfunction. The synapses won't fire properly. And eventually those cells will die. And, and that's sort of my hypothesis in terms of how it goes, because after a few years, what happens is there's changes in the vasculature. The, the lack of interstitial clearance will change the vasculature. The cells will respond. Astrocytes will make inflammatory cytokines and microglia will do things. And what happens after five or 10 years, that becomes sort of a self-perpetuating pathology that then spreads out to other areas. First, it starts with con continuous, contiguous areas um, of the, the limbic system. Um, and then it spreads to the rest of the brain. Now, it spreads to the rest of the brain sort of in a semi-stochastic way. So you'll have a, a different um, presentation of the disease. Some some people in the mid and later stages, they just won't speak. Some people become aggressive. Some people lose this or that. But it all starts in this one area. And this is the area that's critical for making new memories and orienting us in three-dimensional space. And so what, what happens is that um, early on, usually a, a problem, a potential Alzheimer's diagnosis is triggered because grandma gets lost on her way home from the store she lived in for 50 years, right? And then everybody's searching for her for hours. They eventually find her and she just was not able to find her way home. And then they start saying, well, she's been having these problems making memories, she's saying, right? And then the pieces fall together. And, and so it's dysfunction in this one area that spreads to the rest of the brain. So, so my approach has, has been, well, what causes the disease in the first place? I mean, once mm -hmm. it's, once it's spread to the brain, we'll have to come up with another approach, but that's, that's basically what Lucadia is all about. And we've, we've got a way to fix it because basically we can go in surgically and restore that, that, uh, movement of CSF out of the brain. Yeah. Um, that's one of the, so I recently was talking to Oki O'Connor. Yes. I've said his name right. Um, and in that interview, we were talking about, he was doing one of the things he's working on the, the heart, how to move some cholesterol, make, make things healthier. But one offshoot with a grant he got was to work on this heart and brain relationship with uh, cholesterol. And we talked about how the, most people, when they hear about like the gene that increases the odds that you get Alzheimer's, they don't know what it does. And we, like, yes, EPOE4. Uh, it, it is about a cholesterol regulation, apparently. And so it it's is. like, okay, so this, this brain, heart combination, moving stuff around, the, the degradation of that. And then uh, that's what I approached when I, when I was reading about what Lucadia is up to. It's like, that sounds like a very similar process. It's like, there's a buildup of like trash you know i can imagine like new york city there's like a giant dump and it's like slowly affecting everything around it and I, i'm also kind of curious like it, does it when it moves does it move like worth the circulation where it's you know and stuff like that but um 
it, it just it made it a little it made sense to me after like some of these other interviews I was having and re, and looking into it like the the amyloids all those things are just like the end result of like this really multi-step thing that's been going on and I, I thought it was really ingenious how you like, like what you said how you were able to just like okay well well where did it start before that or oh, where did it start before that oh now now it's kind of in this area that's kind of interesting now what, what what's about that um I, I, I very very fascinating if uh it ends up working out it's like imagine like 30 years of going down the wrong road and it's like hey if we just asked a few more questions or used the scientific method we would have arrived at it maybe a little, little quicker yeah well 2020 hindsight yeah but, but, <laughs> yeah but uh but yeah i mean w- one of the things that you know being a neuroscientist for for quite a while now um we, we get absolutely fascinated by you know synaptic transmission neurotransmitters and neural networks and how it fits together and and the learning and the structure of neurons and, and how all that stuff works so we're enamored with that and it's easy to forget that it's the brain is also an organ system and it has to do these basic housekeeping things that all the other tissues have to yeah. do and it might need to do it a slightly different way because for example the blood brain barrier um but it, it it's still a slave to to those housekeeping duties and um and it's it's maybe not as sexy to to say that uh you know the cause of this major disease is a, is a you know sort of a boring housekeeping defect than mm-hmm. uh, than some you know amazing neurotransmitter combination with you know there are there are Oh, about a hundred proteins that have been implicated in Alzheimer's disease. And so does it have to be a specific, you know, balance of these things or is it, is it Occam's razor, right? We just cut through it and, and the simplest solution, you know, has some weight to it. So we'll, we'll find out. I mean, we, we're, um, you know, we've got our, our device that bypasses this, it goes up through the nose. So it's not a, a terribly invasive so well it's invasive because it is poking into you know the olfactory system but um but yeah yeah it would be would be terrific if we're right and i i certainly hope we are but you know science will will figure it out eventually and uh mm-hmm. if we're right fantastic if we're not you know hopefully we'll be inspiring to people who do figure out what the what the right answer is some uh following that the logic of following the cfc fluid um, I, I know you can get some from the spine. So I imagine there's like a probably a giant mechanism for filtering out that that way. And I, and that doesn't get occluded with age too much, which leads which leads me to my general thought, which is the reason people die from Alzheimer's. It's like it starts affecting like they're more uh, the older parts of their brain that regulate breathing and stuff like that, if I remember correctly. So um, I, I wonder if like it adds to your point that when um, when the CFC drain in the front starts getting um you know i don't know dirty or built up it starts affecting all those areas and that one spot that's like the last step before it falls granted it's like if it happened earlier then like you'd fall faster because like you need to breathe but uh, i wonder if like just the fact that you have like this giant mechanism to like filter out cfcs in that area um if that had it kind of like adds to your point of it being the reason like just the filtering out of this these basic um uh, principles of the brain is like the, the cause of Alzheimer's. Like, uh, if there's other areas for CFCs that are normally not occluded, like the the spine, and because they're not occluded, they're the some of the last spots to be affected by Alzheimer's. Well, well, it's CSF. First off, sorry, sorry, low. I said the wrong one. 
what I say? Cerebrospinal fluid. Yeah. What did I say? CFCs? CFCs. Chlorinated fluorocarbon. The ozone is safe in our field. Okay, thank you. I'm glad you called me on that. I would have done it for the rest of the call. I appreciate that. So so the CSF, well, the thing is, you know, the very thin, you know, volume that's on the surface of the brain, the subarachnoid space, it goes all the way down to the spinal cord. And so, uh, you know, that's basically when they do a spinal tap, they're taking mm -hmm. uh, cerebrospinal fluid from there. But that's not necessarily, and and that's been used actually in a number of Alzheimer's studies to try to figure out who's got the disease. One of the problems we have, though, is that it's kind of dated thinking that all the CSF mixes together all the time. If you stand somebody mm -hmm. on their head, like uh, you, you can get it to mix up, but that's not really... A realistic thing to do for a 90 year old with cognitive just like segmented uh, on a regular you know to do it a couple times a day that would not be so good um so so the csf there's sort of compartmentalization so the area that we're interested in it's probably only about five percent of the brain's volume so if it gets backed up and the fluid isn't going there the csf will go in other places right and it'll it'll continue down so when you do a spinal tap um you're not necessarily seeing the biomarkers uh, in that area that we're interested in. And it's no, nobody biopsies the CSF from the, the nasal or the olfactory system. But um, I, I think that, yeah, I mean, there are other disorders related to CSF. There's something called normal pressure hydrocephalus, which is often mistaken for Alzheimer's disease. And what it is, is there's, there's about half a liter or a pint of CSF that the brain makes every day, right? It goes through, clears, goes to the area, outer area, and then it gets taken away. It egresses from the brain. And so it has to egress about half a liter a day. Um, and if there's a problem with that, one of the things that happens is that the ventricles inside where the CSF is made, they can enlarge, right? And so they get bigger and it creates a pressure problem on some of the nuclei around there. And so the, the people who have normal pressure hydrocephalus, typically over the age of 60, they have uh, ataxia, confusion, cognitive impairment, and incontinence, right? Because incontinence, because it, there's pressure on a specific nucleus that, that causes that. And so what they do um, for that is uh, the typically a neurosurgeon will do a spinal tap um, on that and they'll remove a bunch of CSF, like, you know, 10 milliliters per hour or so, and, and watch them for a couple of days in a hospital setting. And then suddenly if they get better, the incontinence goes away and they're, they're less confused and they have, they're walking better, less of an ataxia. Um, then they'll say, well, it's normal pressure hydrocephalus and um, can put a shunt in to remove X amount of CSF a day to, to ameliorate this problem. And it's very common. Um, it's unfortunately about 90% of normal pressure hydrocephalus cases are misdiagnosed as Alzheimer's. And so those people could be okay if there was a better way to, um, to identify them. But, yeah. uh, but you know, most, most GPs um, aren't familiar with how to do this. The, uh, if if you can get it, if, if you open up the valve and the sinus can uh, allow filtering to happen more, uh, 
it seems like it'd be easier to get up your nose and your sinus, kind of like how the uh, in ancient times they would, you know, mummify people by like scooping the brain out that way. Versus right. like every every time every episode of House when they like spinal tap someone, it looks really painful. So I feel I feel like it, you know, maybe they should do that. Is it, unless it's maybe they just don't have as a big of a a valve for lack of a better term, like you can get more from the spinal fluid or something. Well, well, the, this is not going to replace the spinal tap. The spinal tap is is um, is is an important medical tool. And typically, um, uh, the well, it's a it's a needle in the spine, so it's not going to tickle. But generally, um, what happens is they're they're going in an area where so the spinal cord only comes down to about L two, and then the fibers for the nerves below that they're sort of in there in this liquid. There are these fibers. It's called the horse's tail or cauda equina. And so um, what they're doing is they're putting the needle into there. And if they push it in really hard, it's going to like push aside a bunch of nerves and they're going to fire. So the patient will, you know, might scream that their leg is being torn off or something like that because those sensory responses are being uh, artificially activated. But, um, but yeah, it's, it's, it depends on the skill of the clinician in terms of how much it hurts, but it's a, it's a, it's a, it's an important medical diagnostic tool unfortunately uh yeah we won't be doing it from from the olfactory system that would that would probably be a lot scarier too yeah well i suppose the i was just wondering if like theoretically you could get the same effect like same amount in the same amount of time going through the nose as from the spine um well you can i mean the the cribriform plate is the little structure that we look at yeah and it um it can be damaged. I mean, even though it's sort of in the middle of the skull, uh, the front part, um, it can be damaged like in a car accident or, you know, a broken nose. Um, and then if it's fractured, the CSF will leak out and there's so much of it, it'll actually drill out the nose. Um, mm. And uh, that's that's a medical emergency. Uh, typically, it'll resolve itself in, in a week or so. But if it isn't, the neurosurgeon has to go in and and or an ENT surgeon has to go in and basically plug it up with a fiber and glue because um, there's a risk that pathogens that are in the nasal cavity will get into the brain, causing encephalitis, which is you know a deadly risk. So um, yeah, you have to be you know careful in that in that area that, that you don't do that. But okay. uh, but yeah, CSF can come out there, and that's a that's a CSF leak syndrome. Which uh, which happens in ERs quite a lot, or presented in ERs quite a lot. The device itself, it it looked pretty straightforward. How complicated is just the development of that end of itself? Not not not, not even just like getting it in there, but like the device so it works with everything else in there. Well, the engineering, I'll tell you, it's it's been another career for me figuring out the bioengineering. Uh, we've got we we've. We've tried every possible way. It's almost like uh, Thomas Edison. We figured out like 10,000 ways not to make this. Mm-hmm. And uh, we finally got a good one. And um, But it, it's it's been uh, interesting for me, though, because, again, it's it's puzzle solving, right? We, we've got um, two different types of lasers, a fiber laser and a CO2 laser. Uh, we've got different types of titanium, plastic injection molding. Um, it's very complicated. And, and the figure that we show, it it looks pretty simple because it's uh, proprietary. We can't really put too many details in it. 
but the internal parts of it, uh, it is rather complicated. And, um, and yeah, I mean, we've, we've finally gotten there, but, but it was, you know, as a development process where, you know, we, tr we, we tried a few things. How does this work now? We got leakage with this. Uh, this isn't going to stay in place. We're going to have a problem with clogging of that. Um, you know, all the time keeping an eye on making it as safe as possible because we don't want to introduce pathogens into the brain from the nasal cavity, but we want the fluid to go to go out. Um, but uh, but yeah, it's been a, been an exciting uh, couple of years working on this uh, this design. But uh, I think we're there. Is it kind of? Like in, just on a high level, is it kind of like a pacemaker in terms of like it like pulses to allow it to open and close, or just it holds it open? I imagine it doesn't. I think it it closes and open. It doesn't just like hold open. It's not like just a, like like a little uh, valve that you stick in there, like a shunt. Well, you'll have to sign an NDA, Lowell. Uh, <laughs> okay, and everybody right. watching will have to sign the same <laughs> one. But um, That's yeah, fair. No, it, it's um, it's interesting. It's it, it's amazing that you bring up pacemaker because it's one of my favorite. Um, examples because you know we we worked on you know this autism project and another thing with glioblastoma so I'm familiar with the way drug development progresses and, and what we need to do to get drugs into humans um, but this is a medical device and so it's funny because we go along and uh, you know little little company we have, we've had to raise money I've talked to probably a hundred VCs right and they're all they're all you know very interested they've got their their setup of, oh, okay, well, the phase one, this, phase two, phase three, this is the risk profile, you know, the probability that we'll make our money back. Well, okay, great. Mm -hmm. And so we come in and we say, well, you know, we've got this device that we think might might be a great treatment for Alzheimer's disease, and it's not going to cost a billion dollars. It's only going to cost maybe $20 million to get it into clinical trials. Um, and they're like, oh, well, you know, you're going to put this thing into people's noses? You think they're going to go for that? And I said, well, what if, you know, pretend there were no pacemakers, right? Pacemaker had never been invented. And then a guy comes up to you and says, you know what? We've got this little, little box. We're going to implant it in the chest. We're going to push these electrodes into the heart and we'll save millions of lives a year, right? And so the response from the VCs would be like, oh, well, there must be a drug for that. You know, come mm -hmm. back to us when you've got a drug for that and we'll, we'll give you a ton of money to do that. So it's it's interesting, and 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 if if we're successful, we think our device will become you know as common as a pacemaker. It'll just be something you sort of get at a certain age when you hit certain uh, characteristic profiles, um, because there are you know people walking around with pacemakers all the time, and we think our device might be something like that, where it just becomes routine. Mm -hmm. And uh, have you? A part of the clinical pro, uh, trial process, uh, have you done basically um, like occluding a mouse's version of that plate and then seeing how it affects them over the, the course of their life? We did. We did. That's a, a very, very good question, Lowell, that we did that uh, not with mice and rats, which are, hmm. uh, have problems. Uh, you know, all, most of the Alzheimer's models are mice and rats. And the amyloid beta in mice and rats is not the same one as humans. Every hmm. Every terrestrial vertebrate from coelacanth, you know, lobe fin fish up to humans has uh, amyloid beta version that humans have. There are four exceptions, mice, rats, naked mole rats, and a weird marsupial. So it's ironic that, that the most commonly used 
animal models for Alzheimer's disease don't have don't have the same amyloid beta. So they usually put the human one in that. So we didn't do our study in mice and rats. What we did was in ferrets. So ferrets are not rodents. Right, yeah. uh, they're um, they're very smart. They're they're about the size of a cat, but they've got personality of a dog with ADHD. You know, everything's <laughs> exciting and new. Every day is a great day if you're a ferret, right? <laughs> so we um, our our team of human neurosurgeons. What they did was they went in the snout and made a, a very small uh, window in the snout and and took the tissue off the cribriform plate, which is a sort of a, um, a, a rounded structure in ferrets and uh, occluded those holes with uh, dental cement and then put them put them back and you know they were playing in the cage 20 minutes later back with their friends and you would never know they had anything wrong with them until we started testing them for spatial temporal memory so we tested them in uh, in a maze because they a tunnel maze because ferrets naturally chase rabbits down holes. They hunt rabbits and other animals that dig burrows. Um, and so we, we put them through tunnels and they would have to figure out, you know, make three left turns or make three right turns to get out of the maze. And then of course they run through it five times each day. And we're only really interested in how they did in the fourth and fifth time after they've been through it, how quickly do they learn the, the way mm -hmm. to escape? And we found that the occluded ferrets, um, got progressively worse over a six month period. Whereas the control ferrets, they got a little better. They sort of figured out how to game the system and um, they did better and better. So we saw that. And also when we, we looked at the brands later, we saw atrophy or wasting away of the same area of the brain wow. in the ferret that is attacked early by Alzheimer's disease, basically the medial temporal lobe equivalent. So we, we thought that was pretty good. We, we published it as a preprint, but we're, um, we're we're going to publish it later this year as a, a regular article. Hmm. Yeah. Was it was it one of the three that you had on your website? I don't know if the ferrets was in the ones that I read. I don't know. I remember something being about ferrets, but I, I don't remember the details they just gave me. Um, so was it on your website? And I just missed it because I want to read this later, basically. I, I, I'm sorry, well, I couldn't tell you what's on the website these mm. days. Somebody else. That's fair. Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, were you, did you, was there anything about, uh, testing the ferrets before you had it, uh, occluded to see like what their baseline was or did you just use like the yeah. law of averages? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. No, we, we test them. We didn't see any differences between them and the, uh, and the controls. Yeah. Um, it'd be like, uh, it'd be like statistically, uh, uh, improbable that all of them were just like the slow ones. <laughs> Like those are just like the slow batch somehow. Well, well, it's not that they were slow, but they got progressively slower. Yeah, right. They started yeah. off the same, but then they they diverged as time went mm -hmm. on. Yeah, is... the, the divergence and then the effects on the brain, like the fact that they mirror so strongly, is pretty powerful. Is uh because it's a device is like normal. I'm used to like pharmaceuticals like ten years to get before it's in people, uh, because it's a device uh, and a I a pretty simple device overall. Um, what would be like the timeline of like 2023 to like X before people might be able to use it? I, well, you know, it's, it's good that you mentioned that because, uh, devices and drugs have very different timelines, as you say, mm -hmm. um, for an Alzheimer's drugs it could cost at least a billion dollars and take 10 mm -hmm. to 15 years. But for, for our device, it'll be, we'll, we'll have our first clinical endpoint probably in two to three years. And that'll be to treat something called mild cognitive impairment. 
which is a sort of the pre-step before you get to Alzheimer's. A lot of other things called mild cognitive impairment are cause it, but uh, and so we have to make sure we we have people that are are presenting with MCI for the right reasons. Um, and so we do scans on the cribriform plate, things like that. But yeah, you know, it, once we start our uh, our clinical trial, we'll have data in two years, and then we'll have for MCI, and then using the same patients, just following the same patients, not using following the same patients, uh, up to about five years, we should see a divergence between those who did get the um, the intervention and the controls who didn't because the control should be developing Alzheimer's within five years. Mm-hmm. And so if the, the, the rate of our, our, the people who get our device is significantly lower then we can, we can ask the FDA for marketing approval as a, as a treatment for, for prevention for Alzheimer's disease. So it would take, you know, two years to get in clinical trials, but if we get approval for the MCI, I mean, that could make it available in the clinic within probably three, four years. And then for the fairs, I forgot just a, a quick uh, backtrack. Um, after like the six months, did you then unocclude or like add like a little tiny version of your device to see if they would regain function? No, no, we didn't do that. No, we were oh. interested in the acute problems. So we got cognitive mm-hmm. impairment. We also got some some uh, behavioral changes as well, um, where they were, it just sort of became almost like the stone surfer. Not, nothing startled them, nothing stress them out they were very interesting and then uh and then the anatomical changes you know 40 percent reduction in this structure is a massive amount of atrophy and so we uh, we didn't do that we've, we we've thought about doing it again as you say and other people have suggested we do that but we're going to be in clinical trials with our device before we get approval to do that so we're going to press ahead makes sense and then um for the team to just for 2023 is there anyone that you're missing that you're looking for um no well you know we'll be be hiring people but first we need to um we need to raise a little bit of money Mm. (laughs) because now we're moving into the clinic and that's a little more expensive um the team now we have we have a a number of people work with us some are on the website and some aren't on the website but um, but yeah, I mean we're we're a small operation, um, and, but it's gone from you know being an idea to a science project to um, to uh, a device development project. But uh, yeah, yeah, I think I think we're okay now. I'm not I'm not soliciting for applications. Please, please. <laughs> yeah, that's that's good to know. And then uh, is it like Series A or is it still seed? Just for like investors listening in to know how to like. Uh, fit it in oh well we're going to do series a this year because it's um you know to tie together with the clinical trial we'd love to not do the series a until we're in the clinic because once we're a clinical stage company that's a a different ball of wax so um but yeah we'll see we'll probably do a small series a and then once we've um we've done 25 or so subjects with hopefully no major adverse effects um, we can expand that study because we'll need to do about 150 subjects to get the statistics that we need to to establish this. And so we'll we'll open up other sites. We're going to open the first one here. We're just on the edge of Palm Springs, and then the uh, second site probably be up uh, the Bay Area, Santa Clara, 
And then the uh, third site may be in Houston, maybe outside the country, maybe in Canada, but we'll uh, we'll see. Hmm. Well, uh, how do you pick a site? Like, cause I imagine like, I have, I'm from the Midwest, so I just know everything's cheaper here. So then I don't know why people won't just pick like three sites in, in the Midwest and save like 30%. But, well, uh, it's really, it's them? really, the, well, it's the people that we work with, right? Oh, okay. The, the people we've been working with are in these sites. And so the neurosurgeons are, are there. We don't have to start from scratch. And then um, what books would you recommend people check out? I like books, as you can tell. Books? Um, yes. What are you reading uh, or have read that you enjoy? Look up uh, Daniel Kahneman, K-A-H-N-M-A-N, I think. He's uh he's the guy that's system one system two which I think is fantastic um and uh, actually he was a professor at the University of British Columbia when I was an undergrad and they used to come in and uh, and ask the students to participate my statistics professor I guess knew them so uh, they would come in or their postdocs would come in with these questionnaires and these very funny uh, questionnaires you know if you had this and that and and if you use system one you'd get it wrong. But if you sat back and you looked at it and you system two, you'd, you'd figure out the right answer. So, uh, you know, a, a Danny Kahneman book, I think uh, Michael Lewis wrote a great um, story on Tversky and Kahneman. That was, that was a very good read. My personal favorite uh, is called The Swerve. Um, and it's, a, it's not really a science one. It's about how the, um, you know, some some ancient philosophers uh, made it through, um, you know, the the dark, age, the Middle Ages when the church was mm. basically burning all books that didn't agree with their their ideology. So um, the Swerve is a great book too. But those would be my my suggestions. Sweet, I'll check them out. Especially uh, Swerve sounds fun. Uh, very lighthearted reading, uh, reading I imagine. Um, <laughs> and then, uh, what are you currently learning or trying to learn? You know, just like to learn the little show. I was like, I'm curious what people learn. Maybe someone can suggest books or resources to help you out. Um, what I'm trying to learn. Mm -hmm. hmm, well, you know, I've always got a few hobbies going. So we've been uh, been working on uh, some sculptures, and so we've been using uh, uh, silicone molds. And we recently we we actually had to use um have a little foundry for for the device we were making a certain part out of a certain metal and uh and we you know we were pouring metal into these molds that we were making with the 3d printer and that, that was that was pretty pretty cool and uh we said you know what we can do some other stuff with that so we're we have a have a sculpture that we're hopefully going to get to that stage but uh but yeah love the uh youtube videos for that i mean i i wish that was around when i was a kid you know, go on YouTube for for a couple of hours and lose yourself. Figure out how to do calligraphy or whatever it is. It's it's an amazing resource. Yeah, I, I didn't have internet went until I was fifteen, so it was like at the time where I started working all the time. So well, neither did I I. I. I didn't have the internet. Yeah, I know. Until it's I was weird. Well, after well older than fifty. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think based on the timeline you said earlier. Um, so, uh, just a couple of rapid fire questions. Um, what? Um, do we know why Einstein's brain had all the, like the, I think it was the dendrites. He had like really dense dendrite clusters that was greater than the average brain. Have we figured that out? When I was in college, they didn't have an answer. They hypothesized that, you know, that he thought a lot, I guess. And my teacher. Well, well I, I would imagine I, I, from my peripheral memory yeah. on this subject, I, th I think he just had a lot more gray matter, which is, mm. you know, the, um, the cell bodies. 
And so, you know, the brain's a computational device and there's typically a quadrillion connections, synaptic connections in a human brain. And I would imagine maybe at a quadrillion and one or more. Um, and and I think there was, was probably a little more of that. And that, that goes really back to neurodevelopment, that that the period where the cortex is being developed and, you know, the cells are, are made and then they move up to the, they, the guide moves up to the next level and the next level is made that maybe there were just more cells made at that time in, mm. uh, in his brain. But, um, so he was like naturally gifted. Yeah. He didn't like a uh, work for, like he, he wasn't like a, he, like he had some natural ability in his brain. He had like maybe some extra, extra oomph. Yes. Yes. We're not all identical when we're born. I, it's yeah. maybe not the politically correct thing, but that's not how neurodevelopment works. So yeah, I think he had an advantage from the start, but he made the most of it too. I'm sure a lot of other people had similar and mm -hmm. didn't go nearly as far. Yeah. It's a sad story when someone has capacity to do something, they don't do it. Um, today I just released an episode on psychedelics, like the, how uh, they can affect depression and all these other things. Um, mm -hmm. Are you aware of like how, like uh, on some level, how psychedelics are able to do stuff to the brain that affects PTSD. Cause I think we can scan the brain and see PTSD's effect on the brain. So then how would that's, that come in and do something? That's outside my bailiwick. A law. I'm not going to speculate. That, 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 that was a, that was a hell Mary. I was just like, you know, maybe that'd be cool. Um, and then um, what would be a good place to stay up to date? It just the uh, news. I think there is a newsletter feature on your website. If I remember, I don't remember. Uh, on be our website? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. We need to update that. Yeah. 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 So, um, We'll see. I mean, we've sort of been in stealth for a few years now, so we're slowly coming out of it, and we'll uh, we'll post more stuff as it goes. But but you know, I'm, I go to conferences and give talks, and mm -hmm. sometimes they they post YouTube videos. But you know what? I'm I'm starting to do is podcasts, starting with yours, Lowell. You're the first yeah. one. Let's see that yeah. how this goes. Yeah. Uh, actually, on that point, so uh, this is the the end of the show um i just want to thank you for coming on this is like a new way of doing things normally i do like add an intro and outro but people can be fun making fun of my outros so now i'm doing it differently so and you guys better like this now um i just want to thank you for coming on the show uh this was fun for me uh how was uh i won't ask you because you know maybe it's off there but uh, i just want to thank you for coming on and um any parting words or anything you want to encourage people to check out yeah well it, it was good lol i i think for my for my first uh, podcast I, I think you're very very even-handed and and easy on me, so I appreciate that. Um, yeah, it's been good. Nice, nice conversation with you.